Hi everybody, I'm Emily. I'm a PhD student in the Harvard Chemistry and Chemical Biology program. Today I'm talking with Dr. Jessica Ray, an assistant professor at the University of Washington in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering, who has a research program on developing ways to remove contaminants from urban stormwater. Dr. Ray, um, thank you so much for joining us today. I wanted to ask if you wanted to give a brief summary of your stormwater purification research and what led you to be interested in that field. Sure. So I am a new assistant professor at the University of Washington. I started in January last year, and my group is focused on the design and development of novel materials and composite materials to ultimately remove contaminants in different waste streams. So one of those waste streams that I think most people don't really consider that much is stormwater, particularly in urban areas and densely populated areas. And this work was really um, interesting to me, especially as a postdoc. Um, I did my postdoc at UC Berkeley after I finished my PhD. And I am from St. Louis, Missouri, and did my PhD there. And in St. Louis, we don't have any issues with rain or availability of water. And it was very interesting to move to California to do a postdoc about stormwater treatment in an area of the country that is experiencing a lot of water shortages and drought. And one of the kind of exciting features of and really creative ways to think about the urban water supply that is really being pushed by the work done in California and other arid regions is the opportunity of using stormwater to help augment the water supply. Again, it's one of these um, major components of water in the water cycle that goes kind of unnoticed. And, you know, if you're in an area that doesn't get a lot of rain and if you know, the stormwater will ultimately be discharged to some local body of water. So in California, it was the bay, but, you know, wherever you live, the stormwater will discharge somewhere. So instead of discharging that stormwater, you could harvest it and have it as a backup water resource if needed. And the problem with that is that, again, especially in urban areas that are um, densely populated and have high area of impervious surface coverage so you know roads you know pavements building rooftops you have an influx of contaminants that get picked up and transported with the stormwater as the the stormwater is making contact with these various surfaces and so if you are trying to imagine a new possibility for using stormwater you have to first address the contaminant removal aspect and this was particularly true in places, again, like California, where they're really thinking about ways to augment the water supply. But generally in urban areas, and that tends to be trending towards the next you know, 30, 40 years, that most cities will be really urbanized. So this is going to become an issue for everyone, I think, is the fact that stormwater 
is a major point of pollution uh, due to these interactions. And so you can design these green infrastructure like rain gardens and bioswales to help reduce the amount of stormwater runoff on the streets to prevent you know, backup and flooding. And you can use this thoughtfully to also address the issue of contaminant removal. And in those systems, usually conventional materials like sand and gravel and maybe compost are used uh, to passively remove contaminants as the stormwater is infiltrating into these rain gardens and bioswales. But often, you know, especially considering the wide variety of contaminants that can enter stormwater and unfortunately there are some contaminants that are acutely toxic even at very small concentrations and those are also entering our urban stormwater and they're not being effectively removed by these conventional materials and so the work i was doing at berkeley and the work i'm continuing to do at university of washington is to design low-cost engineered materials that can assist in the removal of contaminants in urban stormwater to first protect the water bodies that the urban stormwater is going to be discharged to, but then to also, I guess, increase the possibilities and opportunities to use stormwater in other ways. That's great. Um, I did want to ask, because I'm not familiar with the term, could you describe what a bioswale is? Sure. Um, so bioswales are, the, the nomenclature for these different uh, green stormwater infrastructure are sometimes used interchangeably. So you can kind of imagine um, a bioswale is like a, a grassy road kind of uh, cut out in the road um, that is used to convey stormwater off the street. And in that case, the uh, stormwater can, instead of going down the storm drain to be, you know, discharged to the local water body, you can promote local groundwater recharge um, by building these kind of small uh, cutouts in otherwise large areas of just, or, uh, of just pavement to get the, run, get the stormwater runoff off the street and then to promote local groundwater recharge. So the, yeah, it's basically a, a long stretch of a, a rain garden, essentially. Oh, cool. And then I know I've heard about um, certainly heavy metal contamination and unwanted organic matter. Are there any specific kinds of contamination you're especially interested in? Yeah, great question. So unfortunately, there's like, like I said, there's a lot of different types of contaminants that can enter into stormwater. And so you can absolutely have trace metals that enter stormwater from um, materials in cars and other vehicles, uh, materials and roofing um, materials that can leach metals into stormwater. And there's a couple of other major sources of contaminants that we're interested in. And one of those is nutrients. So phosphate and um, uh, nitrate that enter into stormwater and then go on to um, pollute say, you know, a, a lake or uh, a river. And if you have excess nutrients that can enter into these bodies of water, then they promote eutrophication. So um, you have 
harmful algal blooms that can occur because of the excess food sources, essentially, that are entering into uh, these bodies of water. And that's also harmful for the kind of health of the various water bodies if you have too much algae growth. Um, if you have too much, then say in a lake, for example, the water can become anoxic and have low oxygen environments, and that's very harm harmful for marine life. Um, some other contaminants that we're interested in are the vast variety of trace organic compounds that can enter stormwater. Um, some ones that come to mind are insecticides and herbicides and pesticides that get applied to lawn surfaces that can be, you know, picked up during a heavy rain event in urban stormwater to go on to pollute water bodies. And there's a another um, kind of suite of anthropogenic trace organic contaminants that can enter stormwater, including plasticizers, um, flame retardants. So uh, fluorinated compounds are particularly popular right now. Those can also enter into urban stormwater, and those are pretty difficult to degrade naturally. And so it's important to remove those types of organic compounds before they reach the water body. And our engineering materials can help with that. Yeah, and could you talk a little bit about what kind of materials you're using, I guess, on that line? Sure. So we wanted to be thoughtful about ways to enhance contaminant removal, but also maintain appropriate hydraulic conditions. So for example, if you're thinking about adding reactive media into a rain garden that has you know, soil and gravel and sand, then what you don't want to do is to add a reactive material that you know absorbs a lot of water or causes some weird short-circuiting or um, obstruction to flow of water. So we don't want that. Um, we want to be very thoughtful about what materials we're using. And so thinking about that, we are modifying conventional materials to enhance their reactivity. So one of my students is working on an iron oxide modified sand. So we took a you know, regular beach sand and are coating it with an iron oxide that is going to hopefully target trace organic compounds and trace metals uh, simultaneously. There's other research in, in my group and in other groups looking at other engineered materials. One popular example is material called biochar. So bio comes from uh, biomass. So some feedstock, biomass feedstock options include uh, wheat straw, um, rice hulls, um, wood, other food waste products that you can pyrolyze at high temperature and then they create, um, by doing that, you're creating um, a charcoal, essentially. Mm -hmm. And the, those, uh, the biochar are very uh, carbonaceous, as you might imagine, and have very high surface area and high porosity. So contaminants can diffuse into the biochar pores and be absorbed onto the biochar surface for really effective removal. And it's great because it can remove a wide variety of contaminants, which is what we want in urban stormwater treatment, something that is 
not a solution for one particular class or type of contaminant. We want something that's going to be able to target a bunch of different contaminants. Yeah, and I imagine Biochar is probably reasonably inexpensive and reasonably readily available. Is that a reasonable thing to say? Yes, exactly. Um, one of the advantages of using biochar compared to activated carbon, which is the material that you would find in, say, a Brita water filter, or and it's also the material that's used in water and wastewater treatment, is that the generation of activated carbon usually involves um, a lot of chemicals and activation of coal. So it's a, um, you know, it's contributing to greenhouse gas um, and global climate change. Whereas by taking a food stock that would perhaps end up in a landfill to, you know, release uh, methane or um, you could, you know, use. So another common application of biochar or the original application, I should say, is actually as a fertilizer or a soil amendment um, to help with crop growth because biochar can help retain water and it adds um, nutrients to, to crops as they're growing. So it's already intended for soil amendment and you can do some um, simple modifications or with the correct choice of uh, biomass feedstock, you can get high reactivity of contaminant removal as well. So you get a dual benefit there with, with biochar. That's really cool. Um, on the topic of things that could be used for fertilizer, I know when I've worked with phosphorus in the past, we've run into the problem that it's not super earth abundant and anything you want to use it on scale, you're competing with agriculture, which uses it as a fertilizer. When you remove phosphorus contamination, is that something you can circle back into the use stream? Right, good question. So our group is also interested in the future and designing materials that are selective and targeting certain types of contaminants. And, you know, one obvious approach would be to target those contaminants that are acutely toxic and uh, really harmful. So we want to remove those from water. And another approach would be to do a targeted approach in removal of a certain compound or species like phosphate, and then to eventually recover the phosphate after you do the selective removal. So that's something we're absolutely interested in. And there's been a lot of really cool work in what's called source separation. So uh, designing toilets differently so that the urine is separated from the solid waste because a lot of the ammonia in particular that contributes to excess nutrients in water bodies comes from urine. And so if you can extract the ammonia from the urine, then you can help eliminate that source of contamination. And so you can think about a similar approach for a phosphate and selectively recovering that and then, or selectively removing that and then recovering it so that you can kind of think about it in a more cyclic and, and circular approach of taking a phosphate that's already, you know, that already exists and capturing it and then reusing it instead of having to rely on overmining a phosphorus source, which is going to be a problem in the near future. Yeah, I've heard timelines as short as 50 years, which is not long. It's alarming. <laughs> yes, very alarming. 
so another contaminant you mentioned were you were working on were um, polyfluorinated alkyl substances. Um, yes. Do you want to talk a little bit about where those come from and why they're particularly concerning in the environment? Sure. So they're referred to as PFAS, and that stands for per and polyfluoroalkyl alkyl substances, as you mentioned. And they're problematic for a couple of reasons. They are acutely toxic, which is really bad for us, and they also bioaccumulate in uh, mammals and other aquatic life. So there's lots of opportunity for exposure. And it's because of their intended application, which is as a flame retardant. So, you know, if you think about materials around your home that are flame uh, coated in flame retardants to help reduce the risk of fire, that's a benefit, right? We, we don't want things to catch on fire. So the flame retardants that we apply have to be very stable and they can't degrade at high temperatures and they shouldn't in general be easy to degrade because of that application. And in these, uh, in these PFAS, the way that's achieved is that, for example, in perfluoroalkyl alkyl substances, these compounds are, um, have a unique structure where there's a carbon fluoride backbone uh, so a series of carbon and fluoride um, groups, and then at the end of the compound, it's uh, terminated by an acid like sulfate or, um, or carboxylic acid. And so the carbon fluoride bond in particular is very thermodynamically stable, and it's difficult to degrade. So if you have PFAS in your wastewater and that wastewater is being treated at your local wastewater treatment plant, odds are those compounds are still going to persist even after a barrage of treatments. And so that will eventually end up polluting your drinking water source and then the, the cycle continues. So they're, you know, they're called forever compounds because of this property and how difficult they are to degrade. And they've achieved or they've received a lot of research and interest over the last Year. So in the news, there was um, there are stories about you know local contamination near industrial sites that produce these products. So they can be found in materials like uh, Teflon. That's a uh, PTFE is uh, you know example of one of these compounds. That nonstick coating on your rain gear, which you know we have a lot of in Seattle, all of our. Um, Rain, rain coats and uh, winter coats are all coated with water-resistant materials, and they're moving away from these PFAS compounds now, but that was not the case, you know, years ago. And it's because of this general wear and um, points of entry into water that uh, is really problematic for us because of, again, how difficult these compounds are to degrade. So you can use materials like biochar to absorb these PFAS, um, but then of course you have to deal with the potential destruction of these compounds, which is also desired, right? We can't just remove them, we have to degrade them, hopefully. So yeah, they're a very problematic um, compound, um, but of course, again, they serve a very useful application. So there's this give and take of <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, these different synthetic compounds. Um, just to kind of 
wrap up as far as questions go, um, what do you see as the big um, unanswered questions that the field's going to be looking at in the next five to 10 years? Ooh, good question. So I think in the next five to 10 years, I can, there's two things that come to mind. The first is addressing this issue of regrettable substitution. So this kind of alludes to you know, our, our conversation about PFAS, where you know you need a flame retardant. That's an application or material that is desired in a lot of different products. But what will be beneficial is to generate a material that can act as a flame retardant without the usually accompanying very negative um, health effects that you know are found with PFAS and other flame retardants. So I think there's going to be a huge interest in there that already is, but I think in the next uh, five to 10 years, there'll be a lot more interest in kind of green chemistry and developing materials that can perform the applications and functions that we need, but can do it in a way that's environmentally friendly. So that's one area that I think will be really exciting in the future. And the other is this piece of recovery. So thinking generally about how we view wastewater and really it's this, our water use in general, it's a very linear approach of, you know, we take our fresh, fresh water sources, we consume them, um, it goes to, we waste the water, it gets treated and then, you know, sent back into the world. And if we can think about closing that loop and doing it in a way that's safe, of course, to make sure we minimize any risks due to residual contaminants like PFAS that could exist in wastewater, thinking about closing that cycle of wastewater uh, use to reuse, and then also thinking about ways to recover value-added products like phosphate, like ammonia that could be used for other applications instead of having to rely on the constant manufacture and overmining of these materials instead of thinking about again more sustainable approaches to kind of harvest and recapture what already exists i think that's another big big research push in the next five to ten years yeah those sound like really important questions to answer is there anything you would like to talk about that i didn't mention oh i think yeah we covered a lot in that short conversation <laughs> Um, yeah, I can't think of anything else to add. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, I learned a lot about stormwater contamination, um, and I'm hoping all our listeners have enjoyed this as well. Mm-hmm.